real quick, before we dive into the message, let's give the worship team a round of applause real quick. Thanks for all their hard work. So before we go any further tonight, I actually want us to start with a question. Um, maybe a little bit lighthearted to start here. What is a Christianese term that we use often but never define? What is a Christianese term that we use often but never define? And so let me just give a few really basic examples so you have to think even harder. Do life together, love on people, sanctification, like Christianese terms that we throw out all the time and yet we never define. Start by talking about that at your tables. We'll get some answers. Make sure you know everyone's name and then we will dive into our message. All right, let's go ahead and bring it back in. Let's get some answers. So raise your hand, shout out your name, and then shout out your answer. Ooh, so Hayden says discipleship. That's a Christianese term. That's good. Ooh, Trenton says gospel. Ooh, that is to our shame. Oh, <laughs> Ben says let go and let God. I'm no, no comment. Oh, so Stan is throwing back to us 90s kids. WWJD, what would Jesus do? Ooh, Jane says next gen. Maybe one more answer. Ooh, Lena says hedge of protection. That is a good one. My grandma would be offended. You don't know what that means. So this semester we have been going through the book of Isaiah. And for the most part, we've been focusing on big chunks because obviously it's a huge book to get through. But tonight we're actually going to zoom in on just a couple of verses. And we are going to talk about a very famous Christianese term that I guarantee you have all heard before. And yet you may not actually know what it means. But before we, we talk about that term, we need to read the verse so we can see what it is. So turn with me or tap to uh, Isaiah 48, and we're going to read verses 9 and 11. Isaiah chapter 48, and then we're going to read verses 9 and 11. I'll give you just a second to turn there. All right, starting in verse 9 of chapter 48, it says this, God is saying, I will delay my anger for the sake of my name, and I will restrain myself for your benefit and for my praise, so that you will not be destroyed. Then skip forward to verse 11. I will act for my own sake, indeed, my own, for how can I be defiled? I will not give my glory to another. I think one of the most common Christianese terms that we use and that we never define is the phrase, the glory of God. We throw that out all the time. We'll say things like glorify God, to God be the glory, the glory of God, and yet we, we never once define it. And it's assumed that we know what that term means. But I don't, I don't want to assume that, that we know what it means. And, and I actually think that many of the assumptions that we do have about the meaning of the term are actually wrong. And so in order to understand the beauty of this passage and the idea of the glory of God, we all need to get on the same page. And so let's actually take a moment and try to define the glory of God at our tables. So here's a two-part question. One, what is the glory of God? And two, how do we glorify God? So what is the glory of God? Part one. Part two, how do we glorify God? Take about four to five minutes at your tables, crowdsource an answer, we'll get some answers out loud, and then we'll actually define the term together. If we were going to define the glory of God, and we've hit on little elements of it here, 
Here's what I would say. The, God's glory is the radiation of his holiness and his perfections. So his perfection would be like his attributes, his goodness, his holiness, his love, his justice, his grace, things like that. And we glorify God by reflecting that glory, those perfections, back to him. So if God's glory is the, the radiation of his holiness and perfections, those things going public, we glorify him by reflecting that glory and those perfections back to him. And so in our, if that seems nebulous, it's probably because we don't talk about it much. And so really our whole objective tonight is to explain what the glory of God is and how we glorify him. And so as we dive into those two interconnected ideas, let's begin with the glory of God. Again, we said that God's glory is the radiation of his holiness and his perfections. Again, his perfections are his attributes, things like his holiness, his love, his knowledge, his power, and so on. God is glorified when these perfections are displayed in the world and proclaimed. So, what one of the questions we might ask is, how does God display his glory? How is his glory seen in the world? One of the clearest places where God's glory is proclaimed is in his creation. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans 1.20 says, For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. <clears throat> when we look out at creation... We see echoes of God's power, his creativity, his love, his grace, his generosity, knowledge, presence, and so much more. In creation, God's perfections are proclaimed for all the world to see. When we look out at creation, when we look at the majesty of the mountains, the depths of the ocean, the expanse of the universe, we are forced to acknowledge God. We're forced to realize the beauty of creation is not the side effect of mere chance and time and matter, but rather that the world is the gracious and amazing creation of the holy, loving, generous, and praiseworthy God of the universe. And he deserves all the glory we could give, even just from what we see in creation. But creation is not the only place where God's glory abounds. Among other things, we see God's glory abound in Scripture. And Landon mentioned this, in, his, in God's actions in the world that are recounted in Scripture. Our God is more glorious than we could possibly imagine, and He shows His perfections all over the place in Scripture. Remember, if you've read your Bible, you'll remember that our God is the one who created the world with mere words. He split the seas. He brought plagues upon his enemies. He stopped the sun's movement in the sky during battle. He healed the blind and the sick. He defeated enemy armies of tens of thousands of soldiers. He caused manna to rain down from the sky. He brought a flood to the earth. He defeated and exorcised demons. He took a man who sought to murder Christians and turned his heart so that that man would become the greatest missionary the church has ever seen. And God took the greatest evil the world has ever seen, the killing of the innocent Son of God, and He turned it into the greatest good that the universe has ever seen, the salvation of the world. And He will one day bring healing to all things and judge the living and the dead. Our God 
is greater than our wildest imaginations, and he deserves all the glory. But God's display of his glory doesn't just stop with Scripture. It isn't as if, you know, once the book of Revelation is closed or once the canon was closed that God stopped displaying his glory in the world. Not at all. God continues to display his glory in our lives and our hearts today. And salvation is the clearest display of God's glory in our lives, where he literally raises the spiritually dead to spiritual life. But God displays his glory in so many other ways than that, and it's important that we realize that. It's important that we see God's glory at work in our lives. For me, just as one example, it would be in my calling to ministry where I've seen God's glory show. Public speaking was my all-time biggest fear. Like, I would get nervous speaking in front of like five or six people in a small classroom, let alone a room of people or hundreds of people or, or preaching on a Sunday morning or something like that. That would have been my biggest fear in the world. And so what does God do? To proclaim his glory, he works through my weakness. And so he takes the thing that I feared most and turns that in the very way he has called me to serve him. And you know the beauty of that? He's the only one that gets the glory because Lord knows if it were up to me, my my weakness would not be sufficient to serve him on my own. That's just a simple example of how God gets massive glory and has displayed his glory in my own life. But I want you guys to see where God has been at work in your life to show his glory. And so I want us to take a moment at our tables And think about that together. How have you seen God display his glory in your life? How have you seen God's perfections, his love, his holiness, his power, his knowledge, and more on display in your life? Take a few minutes at your tables, talk about that together, and then we will continue on. Uh, I know that was not near enough time, but for the sake of time, we've got to keep on moving. And here's my recommendation for you. If you feel like that was not even close enough time, I encourage you, if you're going out to dinner afterwards, talk about these stories. This doesn't just have to be confined to 20-somethings. But uh, my, my purpose in that activity was, I want you to see that God's glory is on display in your life. He is showing his love and his perfections everywhere in this world and in your life. Now, in the midst of this discussion of God's glory, you might be asking yourself an important question. You might be saying, okay, I get that God is great, and I get that he deserves praise, but if God's actions are done for his own glory's sake, isn't that just really incredibly vain? I mean, honestly, our passage specifically says that God's main motivation for his actions is his glory. If you go back and read it, verses 9 and 11, I do it for my name's sake. I will not share my glory with another. So, if we're honest, doesn't that make God the world's biggest megalomaniac? I can't, that's a hard word to say. Megalomaniac. Take two. Doesn't that make him just the most vain person ever? This is a vital question. This is a really important thing for us to consider. And so, I want to actually take a second to answer this before we continue on. And I'm going to ask you, put your thinking caps on with me for a second, because we're going to think theologically here for a second. The church is not the place where you walk in and just, uh, you know, take off your thinking cap. This, you honor God with your mind as well as the rest of your being. So think about it this way. God is a perfect being, which means he must have perfect loves, perfect desires, worship what is perfect, and be devoted to what is perfect. And what, in all of reality, is perfect 
infinitely worthy of worship, totally worthy of praise, worthy of the highest affections we have, and perfectly worth devoting oneself to. What in reality would that be? Would be God. In order for God to be God, he must first and foremost love himself, desire himself, value himself, worship himself, and be devoted to himself above all things. If he didn't, he would not be God. He would be an idolater because he'd be putting something else in God's place. God is the only person for which the pursuit of his own glory above all things is not vain. It's actually part of what makes him God. And when we came along, we did not make God an idolater. God did not suddenly worship us and put us at the center of the universe when we came on the scene. And that's a good thing, believe it or not. If he did, no exaggeration, the entire universe would collapse as it would make God a sinner just like you and me because he'd become an idolater. To worship anything imperfect, namely anything other than God, is idolatry and unrighteousness. And if you think about it, when we sin, it's when we value something more than God, put something in his place, trust something more than him. And so if God loves something more than himself, he would become unrighteous. God's highest pursuit above all things is his own glory. But again, it is actually a good thing. And it's part of what makes him holy and good and pure in God. Now, again, that, that may sound really cold on first mention. And for some of you, that's the first time you've ever thought about it. But let me answer the follow-up objection. You might say, okay, but if God's pursuit is first his glory, does he really love me or does he just love his glory? And I'm going I'm to tell you, I want you to hear this clearly. God's pursuit of his glory and his pursuit in love of you are not intention. They are in perfect harmony. God's glory and his love for us are not in conflict at all. And it's actually his pursuit of us in the gospel that he shows us his glory most clearly. And I want you to think about this from different passages of scripture. For example, in 1 Timothy 1.11, Paul refers to the gospel, the gospel where we are saved, the gospel where God shows his love for us. Paul refers to that gospel as the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And if we were to read further in that passage from 1 Timothy, we would see Paul fleshing this idea out in 1 Timothy 1.15-17, where he says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See what he's saying here? Paul is saying that part of the reason God saved him was so that Christ could display his patience and mercy in Paul's salvation as an example to those who Paul would end up sharing the gospel with. And Paul sharing the gospel with others brings glory to God. And then in the end, verse 17 tells us 
that in all of this, God deserves the glory. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We see God's glory everywhere, and it's not in tension with his love for us at all, not in the slightest. It is one of the most beautiful displays of his glory is also one of the most beautiful displays of his love for us at the cross. And we're going to flesh this out a little more, but for some of you, this may feel like the equivalent of a Copernican revolution. Because if you are honest, you have walked through this life with yourself at the center of all things. You guys know the story of the Copernican Revolution? If you're not a history buff, buff I won't go into this very long. But the, the basic story is this. There's a Polish uh, astronomer in the 16th century named Nicholas Copernicus. And he writes this book called The Six Books Concerning the Revolutions of the Heavenly Orbs, published in 1543. And if you think about it, up until this point, most of human history, most people have believed that the Earth was at the center of the universe, was at the center of our solar system. And the Copernicus turns everything upside down. And he says, no, actually, the Earth is not at the center. The Sun is at the center. He says that, uh, that because the Sun is at the center, we need to reframe how we think about everything. And in fact, that's what happened. People's whole frame of reference and understanding of some of the most basic facts of the universe changed. For some of us, this idea that God's glory is at the center of all things, that is a new thought, and it's like learning that the earth is not at the center of our solar system. Because like I said, we have lived this life as if we are actually the ones at the center of the gospel. God was obligated to save us, that we are actually the one that God is working for, like he's this big divine butler, and we pray that way too, and we live that way. But we haven't thought about this idea that actually God is the one at the center. For me, I had my own glory of God Copernican revolution in the fall of 2016. I remember exactly where I was. I remember exactly where I was sitting. I can remember the smells of the grass. I was on Mizzou's quad. I've been reading through Romans in my quiet time. And I even remember the page I was reading where it was like the scales fell from my eyes. And I realized I had had everything upside down. I've been looking in the wrong end of the telescope. Just, just as proof, page 184 of the third edition of a book called The Pleasures of God. It says this, Unless we begin with God at the center of the gospel, when the gospel comes to us, we will inevitably put ourselves at the center of it. We will feel that our value, rather than God's value, is the driving force of the gospel. We will trace the gospel back to God's need for us instead of tracing it back to the grace that rescues sinners who need him. But the gospel is the good news that God is the all-satisfying end of our longings, and that even though he does not need us and is in fact estranged to us because of our God-belittling sins, he has, in the great love with which he loved us, made a way for sinners to drink at the river of his delights through Jesus Christ. And we will not be enthralled by this good news unless we feel that he was not obligated to do it. He was not coerced or constrained by our value. He is at the center of the gospel. The exaltation of his glory is the driving force of the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of grace, and grace is the pleasure of God to magnify the worth of God 
by giving sinners the right and power to delight in God without obscuring the glory of God. I remember sitting there and realizing, oh my gosh, I have had this all wrong the whole time. God's glory is the center of all things, not my own, not my own value. That's not to understate my value. I actually think I've become more valuable when I understand that God's at the center rather than putting myself in God's place. God and his glory at the center of all things, and we are called to glorify him. So my question for you would be, do you actually believe that? Do you actually believe that God is at the center of all things? Do you actually believe the words of Colossians 1.16 when it says, For everything was created by God in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or powers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And just to be clear, the Greek word for everything does mean everything. And that everything even includes you. God made you and I to give him glory. You were made to glorify God. And believe it or not, that is one of the most central parts of our life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question answer number one, so famous, says it this way. What is the, the chief end of man, the main purpose of humanity? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything you do can glorify God. And when you know that you were made to glorify God, it changes how you live. Glorifying God and enjoying him is a core reason why God made you. You were made to reflect God's glory and his perfections in the world so that people might be drawn to see their need for God and give him the glory when they place their faith in Jesus. And one of the clearest ways we know that we were meant to reflect God's perfections and glory in the world is that we were made in his very own image. God explicitly tells us this in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. He says, we made him in our image. He, God made us in his image. And that can be kind of a nebulous concept, but let, let me make it really plain and clear in a very clear real life example. Think about it this way. What is another obvious example of an image bearer outside of a human being? <clears throat> It'd be a statue. And what is the purpose of a statue? Is the point to, to, to point back to the beauty and greatness of the statue itself? Of course not. We, we can appreciate the beauty of the statue. Hopefully it is beautiful and, and attractive and compelling. But at the end of the day, the purpose of that statue is to point back to the glory of the one who it's imaged after. The, the person that it's imaged after. And so in a sense, we image bearers of God are like statues. Our lives are meant to point to the glory of God and the praise of his name, not our glory and our praise. And if a statue looks nothing like the one whose image it's supposed to be bearing, well, then it, it fails its primary purpose. And if we as image bearers fail to strive to look like God in our lives, then we fail to uphold the primary purpose of our lives. So we were made to reflect God's glory in this world as his image bearers. And when we disobey God and we don't live according to his ways, we fail to live out the very purpose we were made for. And that's why, we have to, that's why when we live contrary to God's ways, 
and his wisdom, we so often get hurt and burned out and anxious and rude and fail to flourish. But what's more is that when we fail to live according to God's good ways and commands, we are poor monuments to his glory in the world. We become poor reflections of God. And we actually become like this famous statue of Cristiano Ronaldo, a poor reflection of the one who it's supposed to model. That's what we look like when we don't obey God. You know, we laugh, but we see, okay, they tried, but it's not even close. But you and I are like that when we fail to live out our purpose in life. And this is part of God's frustration in Isaiah 48. His people have been poor pictures, poor statues of his glory in the world. And rather than radiating the glory of God in the world to lead others to glorify and love him, God's people ended up trusting in others and therefore came to reflect the surrounding cultures and gods more than the God of the universe. And their lack of glorifying God and obeying him is why they struggled to flourish in the world. So, we should all strive to glorify God, and when we do so, we will be more likely to flourish, and we will point people to God. And the beautiful part of glorifying God and bearing and being an image bearer of Him is that we can each do so in unique and powerful ways. Again, maybe you've never thought about it this way, but, but it's true. Think about it. For most famous people, they only have one statue made of them. Most of us will never have a statue made of us. Um, but for really famous people, maybe they will have a statue made of them. For the ultra-famous people, maybe, maybe it's multiple statues. But at the end of the day, all those statues are going to pretty much look identical. If you've seen one statue of George Washington, you've probably seen them all. Here's the difference with God. God's glory and greatness is so diverse and so profound that it actually takes billions and billions and billions of statues to give us a picture and a sense of his glory in the world. All of us in how different we are, and not just in our outward looks, but I'm talking more importantly in our inward heart, in our gifts and our talents and our passions, those things that God has given us, we all are unique and we all uniquely image and glorify God in the way we live this life. So it doesn't just take one statue to have a sense of him, it takes all of us and we're still not even scratching the surface of how profound God's glory is in the world. God made each of us with unique talents and gifts and passions to uniquely glorify him. And so I want you to hear me say this, nobody can glorify God like you can. And so when you don't use your gifts and your talents and your time, to give glory to God, you, you pursue other things, you rob the rest of the world of a chance to see something unique of the glory of God. Maybe you've never thought about it that way. We should all strive to give God glory in everything we do. So, what are your talents? What are your passions? What are your gifts? How can you use those to glorify God? How can you use those to reflect God's love and holiness and truth and justice and grace and knowledge and power and more into this world? And to be clear, this includes at your job. You can glorify God in your job. You do not have to be a pastor to glorify God with your work. I would argue that in some unique ways, you can probably glorify God in far better ways than I can. Martin Luther was so good about this. And uh, someone asked him once that, uh, you know, Luther, should we all just become priests and nuns so we can better glorify God? And he said, absolutely not. We need people in all different fields of work to make the world function. We need farmers to harvest food to eat for us. Uh, we need manufacturers to produce clothing to keep us warm. 
We need builders to construct safe buildings for us to have shelter in, teachers to help educate our children, doctors to help us heal. And in our day, we could even say, uh, especially after Santa's comment, we could say that we need IT folks to make sure our technology infrastructure continues on. She's clapping. Yeah. We need all of us to glorify God in unique ways, to give him praise, and so that the world can function. So Luther famously said, we need the milkmaiden and the shoemaker to do their task to the best of their ability to glorify God and to allow the world to function. Dan Doriani, this super incredible seminary professor, gets at this when he says this. Further, as we work in our God-given station in life, we become agents of his providential care. God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaiden. And through our hands, God answers the prayers of his children. We pray for daily bread at night, and the bakers rise in the morning to bake it. The same holds for clothing. God gives the wool, but not without our labor. If it is on the sheep, it makes no garment. Humans must shear, card, and spin. Through our work, the naked are clothed, the hungry are fed, the sick are healed. And through our work, we please our maker and love our neighbor, and God should get the glory. As 1 Corinthians says, Everything we do should be for the glory of God. So whether it's serving in the church, whether it's doing your job well and loving your coworkers, whether it's caring for your family, whether it's being a good friend, creating meaningful art or music or so many other things, think about how you can uniquely glorify God. Another way you could think about this, if, if you're trying to figure out how can I uniquely glorify God, have you ever had a moment where you felt like with your unique God-given gifts, you were meant specifically for that moment? Like where you step in the moment and you're like, there is maybe only one or two other people on the planet that were ever made for a moment like this. And I'm the only one that was made for this moment at this time. It's one of the greatest feelings in the world and one of the clearest ways to glorify God. For me, I felt this in December when I got to go to Sierra Leone to... Uh, teach a group of pastors about theology and the Christian life. And for those of you that know me, I'm a theology nerd. I love talking about theology. I love Q&As. I love discussion. And I can remember multiple moments between the, the pastor's conference that we hosted as a church or even something I didn't even know could be on my bucket list, but preaching the graduation sermon at a seminary. Um, there were just these moments where I, I, you know, if you've heard Eric Liddell's quote, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. For me, it was like when I preach and when I taught theology, I felt God's pleasure. And I felt like there was no one else in that moment that was meant for this. And it was one of the coolest feelings in the world. What is that for you? What is that for you? In a second, I'm going to have you think about it. But as you do, I could go on so many different examples, but let me just share a few from even our own 20-somethings leadership team. Jay, I'm just going to go through a list. Jay, Jay Minnick is one of the most faithful people I know and is always looking to selflessly serve others, reflecting back to us God's deep care and passion for his people. Jane beautifully reflects God's glory in the world through her tenderness and hospitality. And she serves as a picture of the welcoming and open arms of Jesus for the world to see. Kelly has a gift of navigating tough situations to bring peace and justice while being so encouraging to others. Nick reflects God's glory by doggedly using his many, many talents. He's like a Renaissance man to serve others. He's a trusted friend, and he reminds us that God's glory can even be found in Kentucky. Um. <laughs> 
That's right. <laughs> Lauren is one of the most tender and compassionate people I have ever met, and she beautifully displays God's love to others around her. Lena displays God's endless work in the world by being one of the hardest working folks I know and being one of the best leaders that I know. Rakesha glorifies God in her clear reflection of God's holiness and her passion to see holiness and love in others. Taryn is one of the most thoughtful people that I know, and she's one of the most faithful as well. I know that when she's out in the world, she is reflecting God's glory and reminding us that every single person and every single thing matters to God, even the little things. And Haley gives God immense glory by using her talents to lead us in praise so we can give glory back to God. I could go on and on and on. If we had more time, I could go through the list of you all and just what, I, what little I know about you, can, I can already see ways in which you glorify God uniquely in a way no one else can. So what would that be for you? How can you uniquely glorify God? If we had more time, I'd have us talk about this at our tables. But I want you to think about that. How can you uniquely serve God in giving him glory? One nuance I want to add here that would be easy to, to miss. Now that we've talked about some ways that we can use our gifts to make God's glory visible in the world, I think it's important for us to briefly talk about how we can be blind to God's glory in the world. And we need to talk about how this blindness to God's glory in the world actually obscures his glory. So it's not enough to talk about, to, to think about glorifying God in like this intellectual kind of head knowledge sense. We need to make this a reality in our practical lives. After quoting Isaiah, the Gospel of John in chapter 12, verses 41 to 43 says this, Isaiah said these things because he saw God's glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let me say that again. Speaking of the Pharisees, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus gets after this. He, in John 5, he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? When we use our gifts and our time and our passions for our own glory, or for some other purpose than God's glory, we can obscure his glory in this world. For example, when we do something primarily for the praise of others or our own praise, we rob God of the glory he deserves and we wrongly put ourselves in his place. Jesus says in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you treasure God's glory? or your own. Another kind of nuance to this would be that we need to talk about that one of the biggest reasons we sin is because we're blind to God's glory in the world. And when we see things as means for our own ends rather than things that reflect God's glory, we become blind to God's glory in the world. And so let me give you just a few examples of how you, you and I might be blind to God's glory in the world and where we might be prone to sin. 
Are you blind to God's image and glory in the man or woman you're watching on a pornographic video? Are you blind to God's image and glory in your boyfriend or girlfriend as you use them for your own physical pleasure or your own emotional security? Are you blind to God's glory and work in the world when you overwork and practically act as if you're indispensable in order for your company or church to function? Are you blind to God's image and glory in the person that you're badmouthing and gossiping behind their back? Are you blind to God's glory and sustenance when you go to food and overeating for sustenance and comfort rather than going to God after a hard week? Are you blind to God's image and glory in you and the gifts he has given you when you waste your time on copious amounts of trivial things instead of allowing God to use your gifts to bless the church and the world for his glory? Are you blind to God's glory and his promise to redeem the world when you resort to a constantly cynical attitude? And we could go on and on and on and on. Where are you most blind to the glory of God? And how has that blindness led to sin? Again, if we had time, we could talk about this. But here's how I want us to close. We've talked about we are called to glorify God so that his glory abounds in the world. And glorifying God is really hard work. Let's be honest. But we have the perfect example. Jesus is the perfect picture of the glory of God and the ultimate example of how to glorify God. Catch this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we, pro- for, excuse me, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then catch this. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 says the same thing. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, including Isaiah. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus perfectly pictured God's glory to the world and perfectly lived out God's commands and ways. And the more we live like Jesus, the better we will all glorify God in this world. The ultimate expression of God's glory can be seen in Jesus Christ. It is where God's perfections and love most clearly display for all the world to see. And Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 1.11. He says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. In order to strive to glorify God, we must strive to look more like Jesus every single day. And in fact, that's actually the core purpose of our Christian life. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to the next. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's glory. And the central reason for this is that Jesus himself is truly God. 
Christ Jesus, truly God and truly man, and he perfectly glorifies God in it all. And the best expression of God's glory in Jesus comes at the climax in the cross. All of God's perfections are on display at the cross. His holiness, his love, his justice, his compassion, his power, and his knowledge. I want us to close with this scripture. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. It is a common passage, but think about it in this light. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking up the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then catch this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The cross is the ultimate picture of God's glory. The Father gives glory to the Son. The Son, act of, of love, gives glory to the Father. And then the Holy Spirit helps us give glory to the Father, Son, and Spirit through our praise for the gospel. And we will glorify God for all of eternity future by singing together the praises of God in his redemption at the cross. And so I'm going to pray, and then I want us to close together by getting a little foretaste of heaven as we sing, All Glory Be to Christ, together. And for those of us that have never put our trust in Christ, the single best way for you to glorify God in this moment would be to give your life to him. And we would love to pray with you about that. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful that your glory is the pinnacle of it all. It is at the center of it all. And God, would would you help us see your glory as central to all things? Would you help us seek to glorify you in this world? Whether it's at our job or with our family or with our friends or loved ones or in the art we make or the hobbies we have or the time we use or the service to the church. God, help us glorify you in a way that only we can so that your glory would be displayed through us all as we seek to be your image bearers in this world. God, I'm thankful for these friends. I'm thankful for the unique ways you made them. And God, there's no other group I'd want to serve or glorify you with. So as we get ready to glorify you through song, may we have a foretaste of the glory we will feel in heaven forever as we sing praises to you. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.